I recognize fully, first of all, I have not forgotten that it is Palm Sunday. Many of you grew up in traditions where palm branches were all over the place and you waved them and you said, Hosanna, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. I've not forgotten that. However, uh, we are not departing from the book of Acts uh, either this week or next week, uh, Easter Sunday. That's going to put us at Peter's sermon at Pentecost on Easter Sunday. And so uh, I think it's appropriate. Um, I just I think it's important. I'll say this. I mentioned it already, but the Good Friday service Sunday evening at 7 p.m. is really an important part of Easter weekend, not just uh, to acknowledge the, the significance of the event, but to tie into Sunday morning. Um, that's all I'm going to say. That's all the teaser you get there. But I think about Palm Sunday in Scripture. We, we actually talked about this uh, when we looked at Luke chapter 19. That's when we were looking at Palm Sunday specifically. But it really begins way back. Oh, actually, it begins in, in, in the Old Testament, but in the Gospel of Luke, it begins in Luke chapter 9. That's where Luke writes that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. And so for 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, we are watching Jesus set his face, is the language that's used, set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows why he's been sent. He fully understands that. And he understands what must uh, be accomplished in Jerusalem. And so Palm Sunday is really the culmination of the king coming to Jerusalem. It's fascinating, though, in the church, we've, we've celebrated that rightly so, we've acknowledged that rightly so, and certainly acknowledged the, 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 the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, rightly so. But if you think about all of redemptive history that we read about in scriptures, it's a story of the king entering the city of Jerusalem and from those same streets, sending his spirit so that the church may leave Jerusalem. It's from Jerusalem that the church would be sent, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so what we're picking up on this morning is essentially the beginning of that story. Just as the king entered Jerusalem to offer his life a ransom for many, the church would soon leave from this city to take the king's message to all the earth. And so we find ourselves at the giving of the Spirit of God, the promised Spirit, the promised gift of the Father, Pentecost has arrived. This time with the giving of the Spirit. And so uh, we are going to deal with um, the text as it relates to the Holy Spirit. If you're raised Baptist, you're probably already uncomfortable. More so if you were raised maybe Presbyterian. If you were raised in a charismatic tradition, you're just waiting for me to start dancing. I can promise you there's no reason to be scared. Not because of the Spirit or the fear of me dancing. I will do neither. Uh, I think that before I pray, just theologically, many of us in the room have a diversity probably in this, and that's okay. Our statement of faith allows some diversity in this. I, we have people who may believe uh, uh, in the cessation of gifts with the apostles. That's the idea that there were particular gifts reserved for that time that are no longer manifest in the world. I don't hold to that view. I can respect you if you do. Um, there are those, the other side of that is called the continuationists, those who believe the gifts of the Spirit continue even now. Um, I'm there, but I'm a, what uh, JC helped me use the words one time, a careful continuationist. I think that many times the Spirit has been peddled 
um, as a sensationalist and an emotive, just, just basically exploiting people's emotions. Basically what I'm saying is we've abused, I think, the idea of what is the spirit when it's really just emotions. So we're going to enter this and try to be faithful to the idea that the spirit continues to work in the ways we see in scripture, but we need to be careful with that and make sure it's not just us getting hopped up spiritually on emotions, right? So uh, that's kind of the boring theological TED talk before we begin. So, Father, your spirit is anything but boring. He is uh, our comforter. He is the one who cares and drives us to Jesus when our flesh flees or wants to flee. He is the one who convicts us of our sin. He is the one who secures our salvation until the end. He is the one who prays with words when we can't find them. He is the one that confirms the gospel. He is the one who points our hearts and minds towards Christ 10 times out of 10. He is the one who causes our hearts to stir at the reading and hearing of your word. He is the one who comforts us in our afflictions and persecutions. He is the one who drives us to the kingdom. He is the one who transcends normalcy. He is the one who restores and brings order. He is your spirit. And for those of us in Christ, he lives within, resides amongst us. So teach us to hear him. In Jesus' name, by your spirit, I pray. Amen. Acts chapter 2, the verse, first 13 verses. The Bible says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. just want to pause here. We said a line many times this morning, it's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath in our lungs. And many of you are thinking about oxygen moving into our lungs, but really what you would have found using the original Greek pneuma or the Hebrew ruah, you would find that that's the idea of that song. It is the same wind that you see here in the text that we might substitute in the song we've already sung. It is your wind, it is your spirit, it is you in our lungs. So don't just think so simply that we've been singing about a biological process, involuntary response. We bring in oxygen and, and get rid of carbon dioxide, right? It's not that. It is very much this same word. It is your mighty spirit, your wind in our lungs, because without it, we give no praise. And this same wind that we say fills our lungs, that's what it was like. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Uneducated men from Galilee? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the Baptist mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. That would be us. I saw Bob at the liquor store last week. I know what he was doing now. Why were you there? Oh, I was making a cake. That's what you always say. You need some pointers. You're making a cake. They are filled with new wine. Now, I want to do two things here that's really not, it's not in the text, it's not explicit in the text, and so for that reason, I don't want to focus on them very much. But before I, before I mention those two asides, so we're going to go kind of on, a, on a, just a, a little bit of a learning experience in just a minute. But I really want to focus today on understanding the Spirit's role, motive, mission in the early church and obviously into the modern church. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, says, There is no need to be surprised that so many are blind in the middle of light. Speaking of that last verse, they must be drunk. He says, There's no need today to be surprised that so many are blind in the middle of light. If men and women could ridicule the very acts of God we see here today, which clearly revealed His wonderful power, what will they do to teaching that they think is so commonplace? Teaching like this, this morning. Here's the point. Luke is not suggesting that the people who laughed were those who were utterly depraved and beyond hope. Rather, he was showing how the ordinary man in the street reacted to the miracle of Pentecost. How ordinary men reacted to the miracle. And so if we're going to study the Spirit of God in this context, let's study the response initially, and we'll come back here again in a little while. But what is the idea of the ordinary man reacting to this story? Maybe you find yourself tempted to respond to the story as an ordinary man, an ordinary woman, hearing the story of a mighty rushing wind and, and tongs as flames of fire. But I will tell you this. Let's go a little bit deeper on the idea of ordinary men. I can tell you that I have often given in to the temptation of the ordinary man because the ordinary man prefers the predictable, controlled environment where he is the master of his own destiny in the church and outside of the church. The ordinary man prefers to control because control is safe, reliable, and consistent. The ordinary man is resistant to the leading of the Holy Spirit because the leading of the Holy Spirit often entails some unknowns or at least some uncertainties, some risks that you wouldn't take, you ordinary man. I'm speaking to myself. But here's the bottom line. The modern church is filled with ordinary men, filled with ordinary women. This was never God's intent for the church. This was not God's design to be filled with ordinary men and women who rely on their own strength and their own prowess and their own ability. This is not just a passage about the Spirit of God. It is a passage about the mission of God, about the birth of the church. This passage is about the expansion of the gospel and consequently the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. It is the Spirit who enables and empowers ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. And so when we speak about the Spirit, let's begin by not focusing on ourselves. Oftentimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we relate Him to individual experience, how He benefits you and you personally and how He, he does it. And this is all true, but ultimately His aim is beyond you. His aim is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of the Father. 
And he does this by strengthening the bride of Christ, the church, for such work. He doesn't expect, he doesn't want, there is no need for ordinary men and women. This is about a church empowered and completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. Because when you run away from the Spirit of God, when you dismiss the Spirit of God, deny the Spirit of God, you are also dismissing, denying, and defying the mission of God and the very purpose of Christ's church. And so when we think about the Scripture in that way, it gets a little larger because to, to have the Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit within you is to participate in God's mission. To understand the Spirit is to understand God's mission. And so we really want to lean in on that um, in a big way, and the bulk of our time is going to be right there. But let me just, just tell you some, some, some backdrop here to the story that I think is, is, is kind of just heightens the significance of the moment. Luke does not mention either of these things. That's why I'm not spending a lot of time here. But it very well could have been in the minds of the apostles, the followers of Christ. The first backdrop is, is the reality that Pentecost is not here to represent the giving of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. And so, in fact, this is, this is one of three pilgrimages that Jewish people from all over the region would, would, would travel to Jerusalem. It's one of the three pilgrimages called Shavuot. And, and it's a harvest offering and Pentecost is here. In fact, more people probably traveled to the city for this festival than they did even Passover. And so this list of names uh, aren't just aren't just peoples. They're all they're all in the text tells us this morning that they are all either Jewish themselves or proselytes. They've been they have converted to Judaism. And the places that he mentions here specifically, we know had significant Jewish populations within them. So this is a largely Jewish population. They would have come in here understanding Pentecost and the festival, and it would explain why there are so many there. But here's kind of cool thing, and we don't know this to be true, but but second century rabbi used this the Pentecost uh, celebration and they began to recognize it and celebrate the giving of the law at Sinai to Moses. We've already talked about the giving of the law a little bit this morning. And so the idea that God gave the law at the same time as now he pours out his spirit is kind of an interesting factoid for those of you who appreciate it. Now, we don't know that the the rabbis were, were doing this in the first century, but we know shortly after they were, so that's significant. The other interesting concept here is the idea of Babel, was the Tower of Babel on the back of their minds. And the reason that I say that's interesting, because if you know the story of Babel, if you're a babbler, you're a babbler because of Babel. And that's where the word comes from. Um, way back in Genesis 11, um, the, the, the whole passage, I'll, you guys can put it on the screen here. But the whole idea in this past passage is, is look at verse 1 of Genesis 11. The whole earth had one language and the same words. So there was one language then. And if you remember the story of Babel, they get kind of full. They're getting kind of cocky and full of themselves, right? They don't want to go all over the world. They like home sweet home. Um, they love it. And so they, they say this in verse 3. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. And what they ultimately are doing here, come, verse, um, verse 3 continues, brick for stone, and verse 4 says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's just go ahead and make a name for ourselves by building a tower to the heavens. There is an aspiration of God-likeness in Babel. 
The problem is, is that they had the tools they thought to do it and they had the language to unify them. And so you know what God does? He confuses their language. Verse 7 says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. In the plural, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord disperses them over the face of the earth. And so there is this, this imagery, maybe on the back of the minds, at Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, where what the Lord dispersed and divided because of hum- humanity's depravity, He is now uniting again for the sake of mission. Now, I don't think that's a stretch, but I also want you to understand and read your Bibles appropriately and accurately. We don't have that from this text, so we can't say, because Luke is not particularly interested on referencing Babel, but it is significant in the redemptive history how God brings together all brokenness for the sake of the gospel, and so the gospel may be reached. But regardless of how central those themes were, maybe on the back of those disciples' minds, what are they experiencing new in the promise and the giving of the Spirit? And what can we learn about the Spirit's work in the church? Well, I just want to, this idea of being Spirit-filled, or as I use the word, Spirit-led, exists for some particular purposes. The first of those I would say to you is always for the glory of God. This is, this is the, the Spirit's fascination to glorify the Father, right? For the glory of the Father who is in heaven. And He wants us to see this and feel this in the very words He uses. They're in the room. There's, there's 120 or so we know from the first chapter following, um, following Jesus as he ascends. And so there's probably the same number. They've been kind of in a holding pattern and they appoint a, a 12th disciple or a 12th apostle. All that stuff happens. But then all of a sudden in this room, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested. He's using metaphor here, like a mighty rushing wind, tongues as of fire, some other translations, what seems to be tongues. He's using metaphor, which we often see in the scriptures when something is too difficult to use words to describe. So is it that we need to sit here and draw pictures and say, oh, I think that the tongues of fire look like this. So kind of if you're imagining the Rolling Stones record cover with the tongue sticking out on fire, that's not like that's not the point. The point is not to say, I wonder how the wind sounded. I wonder if it sounded like Howard's knob in the middle of the winter on one of those blustery nights. Or how's it sound? Like, that's not the point. His point is the glory of God. He is demonstrating that in this moment, the Spirit was given. I mean, you think about the imagery, the metaphor he uses, fire and wind, right? Moses in the burning bush, an example. Our God is a consuming fire, the author of Hebrews says. And the wind here representing the very breath of God. You remember in Ezekiel, right? In the valley of dry bones. We read this just last week. He breathed into the bones and it's the same kind of language. And so what we're supposed to capture in this moment is not an obsession with imagery to say, oh, it was a tongue like this and this. And absolutely, like the words are just too big to be contained with words. But that God's glory was put upon them. And by the Spirit we know indwells within them and us. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I bet you we could get into a lively discussion here. We have various views, and I think many of them probably are correct. 
in this context, as well as throughout the book of Acts, you'll see the same word or very similar words used for filling. We'll see baptized to be immersed in the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be immersed in the Spirit. That's the same idea. Poured out, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 10, we'll use that language. Came upon is used in chapters 8, 10, and 11. Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 9. And throughout the book of Acts, we see similar words used to describe what is uniquely experienced by new believers. So this is the, this is the coming and the filling and the baptizing and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for new believers. So, so oftentimes, we'll kind of apply that language to the existing believer, right? Oh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible tells us, and this gives us an imagery in the book of Acts, that your filling of the Holy Spirit comes at your salvation. There is no more spirit to give. You have all of the Spirit residing within you, dwelling amongst you. There isn't any more. So it's not a matter of getting more Holy Spirit. The, um, where's Tabitha? Are you still in here? I know she was in the first service because she was doing the Holy Spirit activate thing during the last hour. She, you know, have you seen that video? Holy Spirit activate. Holy Spirit. Aaliyah's shaking her hand. Yeah, Holy Spirit activate. It's like a game show. It's not like you, you turn on the Spirit or like, give me more Spirit. Like oftentimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we're like, oh man, it's because, because honestly what happens when we ascribe it to the Holy Spirit a lot of times, it's just a really sweet moment. Like honestly, like there's beautiful melody from the saints of God. There's beautiful music. It's just, it's just good and right and true. But the filling of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts is literally when you come to Christ, if you are truly in Christ this morning, now you may look at other Christians like, I don't know how that dude's filled with the Holy Spirit at all. It's probably because they're not filled with Christ. There probably is no Christ in their life. If you look at a person, you're like, man, they're just dry bones. So it's not a matter of they need more Holy Spirit. They need Jesus. You may need Jesus. If you're looking at your life like I am, I am just lifeless. It may be because you need Jesus. And so, so the idea is all of the Spirit is given for the glory of God. and to be so, so let's just think about filling just differently for just a minute for the glory of God. To be filled with the Spirit, baptized, is to have security in the gospel, to have security in Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit fills you with this. To have joy in trials, to have an unwavering burden for the Spirit's work, which is to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you have a burden for that? Like, Do you honestly, earnestly seek that, want that? To be filled with the Spirit is to be obedient to Christ. To be obedient, to, to, to be filled with the Spirit is to abide with Christ, to seek after Him. To be filled with the Spirit is to sing loudly and love one another. Did you know that, men, by the way? If you don't sing, I always pick on the men because I think y'all are a, 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 more afraid of singing than women. It's a fair rule. In my, in my experience, men are more afraid to sing in church than women. Now you put on like some country music or 80s hairband and these dudes will like scream out loud. But in church, we're squirrely. Did you know that Ephesians 5 actually says that, that song, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart is literally an alternative. Don't get drunk with wine, Paul says in Ephesians 5, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit according to Paul in Ephesians? That means you address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. It is an expression of the Spirit of God. So you curmudgeons who don't sing, sing. Like, 
I, I joke about it because I'm wretched at singing. But I mean that. I really mean that. Um, I mean, it convicted me just a couple weeks ago. Not a couple weeks ago. Jody's at Jody's funeral. I was looking around the room, and you know, you got a mix of people in the room, but. But looking around and just seeing like the, the, the cross-armed dudes, like seeing amazing grace and thinking about Jody in the presence of that grace unhindered, and how can you not, if you're a believer in Christ, just something's got to just pour out. <laughs> and so, so I, I do joke because I think, it's, I think it's ridiculous that we're so embarrassed of being heard. I am the chief of, of, of bad singers. But it's an expression of the Spirit. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I digress. What I'm getting at is to be filled with the Spirit is simply to be obedient to what we see in Scripture. It's not you who does that. To be filled with the Spirit is for the glory of God. A.W. Tozer says it well. He says, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and partial of the total plan of God for His people. That's how He gets glory from you, not from you. Not from you being super awesome Christian. It's from his spirit in you. And we're so accustomed to we're so accustomed to suggesting that the spirit only works in these mountaintop miraculous moments. But Pentecost, the day of the giving of the Spirit Pentecost only happens once. Healings are are rare relative to the numbers who needed healing. Those things happen, the miracles happen, but where you see the spirit at work most is in the prison cell. <laughs> in the midst of persecution, in the face of adversity, in the singing of songs, in the giving of the word. We're so accustomed to saying the Spirit only works in the huge moments, but praying and reading the word and loving your wives and loving your husbands and working excellently in your vocation as to the Lord, not unto men. This is living for the glory of God. This is what the Spirit is given. He is given to us for this reason. The second thing that's fascinating is not only spirit-led for the glory of God, what about the church? This is ultimately the giving of the spirit is equated with the beginning of the church. It's for the good of the church. Um, and this is where we're going to get this, this issues of tongues. So, <clears throat> over 2,000 years of the church has really messed up and jaded us the way we think about speaking in tongues. Um, like we all have probably some interesting thoughts around this, maybe some really strong thoughts around this. Um, we come from different places. We come from different traditions. Honestly, I didn't know there was such a thing as speaking in tongues until I was like 23. I was like, people do that. Um, when you kind of hop around the Lutheran church a little bit, you never hear that kind of stuff. So I didn't know it was a thing. But let's look at it a little bit closer here. First thing I'm going to tell you is this is different than what Paul speaks about to the church at Corinth. And the reason it's different is because um, it is intelligible to everyone who hears. And so what we have at the church at Corinth is, um, let's just say I am in the church at Corinth and I'm speaking in tongues. That, that, what that means is the church at Corinth didn't understand what I was saying. So I would be speaking in a language you could not understand. And then Tanner, I would just feel like Tanner would be a great interpreter. So Tanner, then from the Lord, by the power of the Spirit, would then interpret for me. And that's what Paul says. You must have that, right? You look for that in the public gatherings. This is a little bit different, though, because they are understanding. What does the text say? They heard in their own language, which is fascinating to me. 
And so it doesn't, it's not a huge deal to get over, but just understand the, the, the hearing, it's, it's intelligible somehow by the Spirit we know, but somehow he is, they're speaking, these simple Galileans are speaking, and all the languages represented in the crowd here in their own language. So they're not relying on a human interpreter. So it's just a little bit different than, 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 than the church. But the principle is absolutely the same. The gift of tongues, and I would just expand that, the gift of gifts, right? All spiritual gifts are given, have, have a common purpose here. And it is the edification, the equipping, the building up of the saints for the work of ministry, the building of the church. The purpose of tongues here, particularly, is so that the message, the praises of God, might be understood by all as a witness for the gospel. And so, again, what was broken at Babel is united in this moment. Just to give you an idea, kind of the, the principle at work here, it's in the gifts that you have, whether in tongues or prophecies, Paul's, Paul is addressing this in 1 Corinthians quite intently, and he uses the wedding verses to talk about spiritual gifts. Anybody want to stand up and recite it? Frankie's with us again today. You want to recite 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant, right? Or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Raise your hand if you had this at your wedding. Anybody? Candy? This is a beautiful... Two. Yep. Two? I figured like everybody who's married up in here would have it. Okay, good. Now we're getting honest. Yeah. And, and so what I'm saying is, is absolutely true. I think it's good for, for, for wedding ceremonies because it's a picture of love that is true. Um, and y'all can be honest here. Did you all read the whole passage at your wedding? So you continued in verse 8. And so you talked about prophecies and tongues and see. So a lot of folks, exactly. A lot of folks are like, man, that, that's not, that, it's, it's odd here. But when we step back and we see the purpose of love... And gifts, we see that the love that Paul's really getting at, which I think is fair to say because he does it in Ephesians as well, is about Christ and his church. And the way that when we have a gift, a gift truly expressed, it must be done for the sake of others. You have a spiritual gift. I don't know if it's, if it's tongues. I, I don't know what it is. But I do know it's not for you. Your, your spiritual gift is not for you. Did you know that? So if you're a teacher, if you're a, if you, if you just, if you're a, a servant, if you're whatever you are, it's not for you. It's for others. It's for the good of the church. That's Paul gets to that, you know, first Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians four, the Bible's full of it. And so I don't want to separate tongues over here and say, it's, it's a gift built for the building up of the church. The Spirit gave the gifts of tongues so that people with multiple languages would be united around one confession, one Savior, and one mission. And I think this is huge for us in an era when I will say this very boldly. When I think tongues many times, many times, not every time, but many times are abused in the modern church. We need to study them and test them. That's the Bible tells us to test, to ask the question, is this for the good of the church and the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's mission? That's what the Spirit is after every single time. He's going to push us to the kingdom every single time. 
It's not for our own personal experience, our own personal benefit. It is for this much larger kingdom-sized kind of stuff. And so here we are, Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit pours out. How many of you, more of y'all will respond to this, and thank y'all for slowly coming around to the marriage poll. Um, More of y'all respond to this. How many of you, and I've heard this before, I've heard this language before. Uh, I'm going to get to my third point through this, through this bridge. Um, How many, I've heard this many times, that we are praying for a revival so big and so Spirit-filled A movement of God. Like I can almost hear it. Like I am praying for a movement of God. Amen. And we do it and we get all riled up and we're going to have God pour down. Like a lot of times this is a national day of prayers coming up in May and we're always praying God and we use Jeremiah and we use, uh, we use all kinds of texts to kind of say uh, that this is, this is the time we want a movement of God that is so big and so, so undeniable that everyone will fall on their knees. So undeniable. There will be a revival in this land. And so, so here's the bridge that we often hear that kind of language. But I want you to look back at the text real quick. It is the giving of the Spirit. There are something like, like tongues as flames of fire, a mighty rushing wind. Everybody's going to fall down and believe this. This is the biggest moment in, in since Sinai. This is huge. And yet there's a group of people over there saying they're drunk. They're crazy. Nothing outside of heaven and Christ's return will be undeniable if this moment's not undeniable. This is, an, uh, this is this to my, me, my, how could you deny this moment? And yet there is this powerful lesson that Luke says, others mocked. Others mocked. I mean, if the disciples had planned a tent revival, this was it. We're going to bring in the best speaker. We're going to rent the convocation center out. And we're going to have all the awesome bands. And we're going to get, we're going to get a gram. I don't know who it'll be, but we're going to get a gram. <laughs> and we're going to give away free tickets and free food. Ronnie's going to sing. I mean, the biggest event. This is how we're going to reach our city. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I mean, we're going to reach our city by getting a whole bunch of people in the room. And it's going to be so undeniable, everybody's going to fall on their knees. There are some exceptions in Scripture, but the Spirit's working for the mission of Christ is typically accomplished much more subtly than that. And I'm so thankful that Luke includes this detail because it fulfills of what Jesus promised them would happen. You're going to be denied. You're going to face difficulty and trial. Even in Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, we see a glimpse into this moment. And we're going to see that come to life in the book of Acts. The Spirit, though, is given for these kinds of situations from this day forward for the mission of Christ. We know the Spirit is given according to Acts 1, verse 8, according to Matthew 28. We know the Spirit is given ultimately for the mission of Christ. And I think it's good and right to hope for such big things. But I don't believe we'll see such a big thing until the Lord returns. Because ultimately, the Spirit is given for the mission of Christ, and the mission of Christ is often a lot seemingly smaller than stadiums filled with thousands or national revivals. If this movement of God was not undeniable, no movement of God outside of the end times will be deniable. 
But the response teaches us, the response of these people, the scoffers, the skeptics, who, again, aren't particularly depraved, they just think they're kind of crazy. The response of the people teaches us much about living a steadfast, spirit-led, lifelong ministry of perseverance for Jesus Christ. It's an immediate reminder again of what Jesus taught. And this, for me, reinforces, I think, the application for Perkinsville Church. The application and the necessity of living a spirit-led life of spirit-led people, not ordinary men and women, but spirit-led men and women living out the mission of Christ for the glory of God in their lives. We don't have to wait for a huge event. We don't have to wait for a massive shift in culture. We don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to wait till we get all our ducks in a row, right? We don't have to wait to have the event with thousands of dollars and thousands of people. We don't have to wait for that. The Holy Spirit's not reserved for those big moments alone. He is not holding out there for a crowd. He's not evaluating faithfulness by how many people you gather in front of your feet. The Holy Spirit's not reserved for those big moments. So let's not be obsessed with these big moments and these big experiences in our Christian journey. We'll miss the Spirit's leading in the everyday moments of our life if we are. We will miss the moments to hear the Spirit of God leading us in the most seemingly mundane spheres of our lives. The Spirit calling us to to enter His Word, to pray to the Father who is in heaven, to sit in silence because we can't find words at the moment. The Spirit is calling. He is equipping. He is present in the church at Perkinsville and all the church of Christ universal to live His leading in the midst and the, in the simplest moments of our lives. You know, we're not going to we're not going to just, we're praying to see a, a thousand missionaries and church planners sent. It, it, it's, it's, we're not just going to pluck somebody up who, is just, who just says, oh, I'm going to the nations. We're going to, you know, the Lord's going to bring, the Spirit's going to raise those people up by obedience in the rhythm of everyday life. Because when you're obedient in the simple rhythms of loving what Jesus loves and doing what Jesus does, where you live, where you work, where you play now, you know what he's going to do? He's going to continue to enlarge and grow and call. And so we're not looking for superheroes. We're not looking for major events to basically, I, I, you know, there's great things that happen where you can really create an emotional mix. Like, I bet you that we could play the right music with the right words and I could get 15 of y'all to commit to going on the mission field. I mean, honestly, we could paint a picture and you could do it on your own emotions, your own strength. But we're missing the Spirit leading us in the very rhythm of our very lives. And what we see when we're faithful to Christ in the context He's given us, He's going to call us to other contexts as well. So we're not going to get to these big, massive, hopeful, I'm praying earnestly for such things. By, by large events or emotions alone, we're going to get there by listening to the Spirit leading us in the rhythm of our lives. Our discipleship groups uh, on the first 12 weeks, if you're in a discipleship group, you are familiar with this, but during the almost the last week, we talk about vocation and what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple in where you, where you work, so where you live, work, and play. And um, Matt, if you haven't already been able to tell, is a huge fan of Tolkien and The Hobbit and, and, and Lord of the Rings and, and the books and the animated cartoon, which, you know, it's just something I love the movies. But, um, but anyway, it's Frodo Baggins and the other hobbitses, as Gollum says. Hairy little feet, short little people. And the, most, the least likely to save Middle Earth, really. 
Samwise is, is a hobbit friend and faithful to Frodo. In fact, he journeys with him up until the very end, almost is able to make it to the fires of Mordor. Samwise has possession of the ring of power, uh, or has, has access to the ring of power, and recognizes this mission to save Middle-earth is huge. Like, literally, this little hobbit has the opportunity to change the course of history. They'll write books about him. They'll write books about him. The problem with the ring of power is that it, it peddles power. Whoever possesses it has the power to control people. And ultimately, if you've not read the books or watched the movies or any of it, you recognize that there's so much to learn. In fact, it was written to reveal the human heart. Samwise, coming from the Shire, that's where the hobbits live, starts believing the lie. I can have power. I can have notoriety. I can have influence. I can save the earth or I can control it. And he looks in a moment and thinks back to his life in the Shire where he was a gardener, a simple gardener. He says, the one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. And he thought, in any way, all these notions are only a trick. He said to himself, the point of that in the context of our discipleship groups and the point of it in this sermon is the acknowledgement and the realizations and the realization, the power of simplicity and the power of being where you are, the power of serving, of flourishing and living where God's put you. And I say that to apply the work of the Spirit. You may feel like, oh, the Spirit's alive when He leads me to go to Africa. Maybe He will. It's always Africa. Maybe the Spirit is there when I'm sharing the gospel with a friend. And He is. Maybe the Spirit's there when I'm teaching or leading a group of other people. And He is. Maybe the Spirit is there when I'm doing this great work. But let me tell you, we've got to come to terms with the Spirit leading us in the everyday. More often than not, you and I respond out of our flesh. We're given an opportunity. We're given a decision to make. And what do we do? Rapid fire our thoughts and our minds and our thinking. The Spirit is there in that moment if you'll listen. And what we need to be is a church who seeks Him. Sensitive to the Spirit. Opening the Word. Asking the Spirit to reveal truth. Don't feel like praying? I get it. In your flesh, you'll never feel like praying. But asking the Spirit to give you the words even when you don't have all the fancy words to say. Don't feel like loving your wife today? I don't get that. There's never a moment. <laughs> um, she would say that about me. There's never a challenge to love me. Don't feel like loving your wife or yourself. Seek the Spirit. Because you won't always feel like loving another person. You won't always feel like opening the Word. You won't always feel like serving Jesus or sacrificing a moment in time. Seek the Spirit. He's there to glorify the Father, build the church of Christ, and advance Christ's mission. And when you seek Him, He's going to push you in one of those directions, all three at once. Because the wait for us is over. For the disciples on this day, it was over for them. 
And from this day forward, they never could claim that they were normal again. They were no longer normal, no longer ordinary. The church was not filled with normal people after Pentecost. And I don't want the church to be filled with normal people now. I don't want normal people, ordinary people relying on their own strength. Do you want that? Is that what the Lord has gathered you here for, to come sit with other ordinary people who live out life on their own strength? Let's make great plans together, Perkinsville, and implement them ourselves. That's, that's, not, that's not of the Spirit of God. I don't want ordinary people. Because ordinary people have never defined the church. I want to be a people who seek the Spirit for the glory of God, for the good of the church, and for the mission of Christ. And this morning, in just a few minutes, we're going to sing a song to close our time together called Behold Our God. And what I encourage you to do as we are singing this song is ask the Spirit to illuminate your heart, your mind, your soul, to acknowledge the God you're beholding, to acknowledge the God who saves you, and if He has not, as the Spirit convicts you that you behold the goodness of Christ, the gift of the Father, and you give your life to Him. Ask the Spirit to come and demonstrate the goodness and glory of our God even as we sing. Brothers, for those of you who hesitate to sing, again, I harp on this, I harp on this, I harp on this, but some of the most simple Moments in time can be when you sacrifice something as simple as your voice and give it over to the Father. And simple moments like this lead to transformative moments in life. And so let's behold our God together this morning by the power of the Spirit this time. Not by the strength of our own voices, our own might, but ask the Spirit to help us envision and see the glory of God before us as we behold Him. So, Father, we are asking for your spirit in this place to do that, to behold our God seated on the throne. Come, let us behold you, Father. And that is only accomplished because of what Christ has accomplished and by the good gift of your spirit upon us. Lead us to have lives for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the mission of Christ Jesus who through all of this promised and delivered the sign and the security of our salvation in the Holy Spirit of God. Fill our lungs with your Spirit that we may behold our Father seated on the throne. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.